Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top political story of the week continues to be the possible impeachment of President Donald Trump. And on Tuesday, House Democrats announced two articles of impeachment, and they focus solely on his dealings with Ukraine. He is charged with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. And now the timetable moves very fast. The Judiciary Committee approves the articles of impeachment, and then the entire House will vote next week. For more on these articles of impeachment, we spoke to Alex Gangitano, reporter at The Hill, for how this is all going to play out. She decided to use this narrow approach that she's saying rise to level of high crimes and misdemeanors, that he abused the power of his office and he obstructed Congress during the impeachment inquiry. And so, as you said, that's really focusing on the unfolding controversy around the pressure that the president was putting on the Ukraine government about these investigations. Of course, the Hunter Biden investigation, which would be the president looking into one of his political rivals, former Vice President Joe Biden. And then part of this theory that is considered debunked that Ukraine, not Russia, meddled in the U.S. election. Of course, President Trump today is now calling this whole thing a witch hunt and that these articles of impeachment are ridiculous, as expected here in Washington. So the charge of abuse of power had to do all with Ukraine and withholding the military aid and also putting a condition on a White House visit for the Ukrainian president, he had to announce those investigations. That was that part of it. The obstruction of Congress had to do with all of the subpoenas that the president basically told nobody to follow. So they couldn't get documents. They couldn't get witnesses. That's the obstruction of Congress. And then, as you mentioned, people were trying to float around a third article, possibly of obstruction of justice. But that had to do more with the Mueller report and obstructing that stuff. So they decided to leave that one off. How do Democrats feel about what they have here? Because from my understanding is that they wanted to leave that third article off just to protect some Democrats that might face tough reelection chances in the coming year. The news today is a good thing for moderate Democrats who Speaker Pelosi has to be looking out for, who can face tough challenges going into the next year, who kind of don't want to have to go back to their constituents and say, First of all, we've been doing nothing other than impeachment. Um, you sent me to Washington, I've gotten nothing done, et cetera. But also that this is, you know, this too broad of a thing and, you know, a waste of time for Democrats to be dealing with. I think what's interesting is, of course, Pelosi has had such a united front here with all the chairmen, Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, who really are standing by the fact that. This is, of course, a seldom day in Washington, and this abuse of power left them no choice but to start impeachment. And then the way that Trump has handled impeachment is another article of impeachment here that they can use. It seems, by all accounts, that President Trump will be impeached in the House. I mean, the Democrats have a majority. It seems like it's going to happen along party lines. And then it's going to go into a Senate trial in January where the Republicans control the Senate and he has a ton of allies there. And for them to really get a two thirds vote to remove him for office really seems like a hill that it will not be climbed. 
Leader McConnell has already indicated that this will be kind of a quick vote end of the show once they get back. A few weeks ago, McConnell put out the Senate schedule and January did not have any legislative um, information on it. And so that was an (laughs) indicator that he's expecting this to happen right after the new year. He wants it to be quick. He even floated the idea today of this 10-day minimum to get through the talks. And so he wants to, by the end of January, February, really get back to work in the Senate. As you mentioned, Trump has the votes in his favor in the Senate. Of course, the Republicans are in the majority there. And according to kind of preliminary whip counts in the Senate, McConnell does have the votes to not formally impeach the president here. Now, I've also been hearing that the president and maybe his legal team seems to want to get more involved when the trial goes to the Senate. They want to call witnesses. I know they've been dying to talk to Adam Schiff. They want to nail down things with the whistleblower. But I've also been hearing that Mitch McConnell probably has a slightly different idea. So there might be a little bit of combativeness between them on that front. There's been interesting kind of divide between how the two McConnell and Trump are handling impeachment here. McConnell, of course, first of all, said that this will not happen in before the new year, which, of course, is great news for reporters here in Washington. But he also (laughs) has said that this should not be something that should go on and have additional people from the White House come up and kind of waste time here. He'd rather move swiftly. But we're seeing kind of the opposite in the House right now. Republican congressmen have called for a minority hearing on impeachment as a procedural measure and claiming that this is something that they should be allowed to do. And so it seems like there's this divide of how Trump and the House Republicans want this to go on in the sense that the White House would get more of a voice through this. Adam Schiff would testify, as you mentioned, whereas McConnell does not want to have that kind of hoopla about this. and, And he just wants to get it over with, it seems. Alice Gangitano, reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Good to chat with you. Also in the political realm, at the same time that House Democrats are trying to impeach the president, they're also delivering him a very big political victory. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that there is an agreement on the USMCA, the trade pact to replace NAFTA. After winning the endorsement of the president of the AFL-CIO Labor Union, It is on track to be passed before Christmas break. For more on this trade deal, we spoke to Ian Culgren, reporter at Politico. Moments after Democrats announced the articles of impeachment against the president, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi marched out and said there was a USMCA deal that they've been working on for the better part of two years now. The final linchpin in it was the support of Richard Trumka, who is the president of the AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the United States. A lot of unions have been worried about this deal with the Trump administration because they worried that it wasn't significantly different enough from NAFTA in terms of the labor protections that prevent jobs ultimately from going overseas. As of last night and this morning, they feel like they have reached a deal that won't get any better and sufficiently addresses their concerns. What are some of the big differences between the old NAFTA agreement and this new one? The big thing is this new trade deal is, in terms of tariffs and in terms of goods, is not that different than the original NAFTA was. The big sticking point right near the end for quite a while 
had been the labor protections. The U.S. had insisted that Mexico adopt labor laws that were similar to the United States as a way to prevent companies from outsourcing jobs to Mexico. And after a lot of wrangling, they reached an agreement to inspect Mexican companies that they felt could be a problem in following the agreement and enforcing it. I should caution that we have not seen the text of the agreement yet. So it's a little bit difficult to say this very moment what it actually does. And we have sort of seen some spin from both sides in terms of the Democrats and Chairman Richard Neal alluding to the fact that labor has stronger labor inspections. And then the Mexicans saying that there won't be U.S. inspectors in their country. So it's a little bit difficult to say what it does exactly at this time. But it certainly is a big political victory for the president. And it will be very interesting to see in the next few weeks and months how each side tries to take credit for this deal in getting it done. What kind of timeline are we looking at for this to be voted on? I think people are saying they want this to be the last vote that House members take after the impeachment vote. That way, that's that's not the last bad taste in people's mouth. Nancy Pelosi has said for some time that she doesn't want impeachment to be the last thing that her members vote on before they go home and before they conclude 2019 and then start the election year off. It's likely that this is going to be voted on a few days before Christmas after impeachment is voted on. So we're looking around, you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks, this is probably going to come up. And surely they would not be bringing it up in this way if Pelosi was not sure that she had the support to get it done. Ian Culgren, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Another important story to be careful for, if you're in the online dating scene, you have to be careful. An investigation done by Columbia Journalism Investigations is showing that many popular dating apps do not conduct any criminal background or identity verification checks, and known sex offenders have been found using these apps and assaulting women. Tinder, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid, and other free dating apps owned by Match Group are not checking users and potentially leaving some vulnerable to sexual assault. For more on this and what happens when you report an instance to Match Group, we spoke to Elizabeth Pachani, a fellow at Columbia Journalism Investigations. We started by just looking at the issue of sexual assault that occurs off of an online dating app or platform. There's no current government data or agency that's really tracking this. So we started by creating our own database, really, by pulling news clips that we then verified with police reports or court documents. And we found that there was about 150 cases of sexual assault off of an online dating app or site. And the majority of these cases were on Tinder, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid, Match.com, and Match Group owns them all. So that led us to say, what are the safety measures of this company? Then we began to see a couple of lawsuits and really it kind of went from there. Match.com, for its part, and some of the paid services that they have, they do perform background checks on people, but where the majority of this is happening is on their free apps. Like I said, Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish. There's no background checks going on there at all, right? Correct. On the free products, there is no screening of the sex offender registry or background checks. So a lot of this started actually 
in 2011, there was a woman named Carol Markin who basically made it her mission to improve Match's safety practices because the site had connected her with a six-time convicted rapist who had raped her on her second date, she told police. So Markin sued the company And the result of that was these sex offender screenings that Match.com agreed to initiate. So the next year, Match.com also made similar promises to California Attorney General Kamala Harris at the time. And this was in 2012. And it was an agreement on what was considered best industry practices. So Match was agreeing that screening the sex offender registry was a best industry practice. However, as Match.com became the publicly traded Match Group and they acquired Tinder, they acquired OkCupid, they weren't extending this promise to their free products. And they don't even screen the paid premium features of people who use things like Tinder. It just seems like from some of the reactions that you've gotten from Match Group on why they don't screen a lot of people, it is this game of numbers. Their simple answer for why they don't screen so many people, especially on the free apps, is that there's just not enough information submitted on those apps to actually perform some type of background check. I do believe they could maybe request some of this information or there's ways to obtain it. I think about Herb Vest, who in the 2000s started a dating app company called True.com, and it was really sort of his mission to make it screening against the sex offender registry and doing background checks. And he felt that really it was part of both his business model, but also kind of his moral philosophy to do these screenings. And at the time, he paid about a million dollars to have unlimited use of backgroundchecks.com and rap sheets and whatnot to uh, screen his users. I mentioned that it seems like there's this pattern of people getting caught and then ending back up there. There was even some cases where there was a sex offender that was on OkCupid, despite appearing on some of these other registries that if Match had gone through and looked up, he would have showed up there. Tell us some of these other instances, some of these stories that you've gotten from people and their experiences. I think a lot about Carrie Godier, who was using OkCupid when she was matched with a man named Michael Miller, like around May of 2014. And the following year, Miller pleaded guilty to sexual assault charges from Carrie's case. And he got 10 years of probation with sex offender stipulations. Yet, even after this, Carrie, you know, told OkCupid that he was convicted and that he was on OkCupid's site. Yet, she says that she frequently saw Miller on OkCupid, and part of his probation sentence included not using these dating apps anymore. Nevertheless, within a couple months, in fact, a few women went to police and said that they saw Miller on these dating apps. So it's kind of an example of where actually law enforcement is carrying out through the justice system actions, and yet this man was still able to access and use these apps and repeat offend. What happens when somebody reports a case like this? What's the protocol that they follow? So part of that 2012 agreement on best industry practice with Kamala Harris, they also said they were going to implement what they called a rapid abuse reporting system. So when someone reports something, they're going to have a quick response. And some things in their public promises they've included is saying that they will encourage the victim to report to law enforcement. They have a 
ban first mentality and that they will basically, because they own all of these apps, they will check and try and find him or her on one of their other company sites. So if you report someone on Tinder, they say they'll also check to see if he's on OkCupid. Part of the problems become that you are requesting different information on these sites. So if you sign up with your Facebook account on Tinder, but then your email on OkCupid, there is not a consistent way of being able to always find someone. Furthermore, we've talked to a lot of women who say they didn't get a response or they weren't encouraged to go to law enforcement. And even more than that, I guess we have seen that they do seem to uphold a ban first mentality, which means that as soon as someone's reported, they will take him off. However, we're kind of still looking into that and we're hoping to keep reporting on what happens when women say, hey, this thing happened to me offline. I'd like to give you more information about it. The big question really seems to be these online dating apps who are matching people, what is their responsibility on this? And I know there's been some lawsuits and some laws that tried to be enacted, but there seems to be this one, the Communication Decency Act, which really kind of limits the liability for a lot of these companies. It protects them in a lot of cases. I find the Communication Decency Act really interesting. It was passed in 1996, which when you think about it, the internet was really not what it is today. It was just basically being born. And it has this provision called Section 230, which essentially says that an internet company is not held liable for third-party content. Now, this means that its intention is to protect websites from being held liable for their users' speech, which includes also images and video. So if you were on Yelp, it would protect Yelp from if you wrote a really scathing review of a restaurant or whatnot. However, it's really been used and very broadly to be applied not just to third-party content, even though that's what the Section 230 states, but also kind of the internal processes and protocol of companies. And you hear this Section 230 of the CDA coming up a lot right now with like Facebook and YouTube even, because it shields these internet companies from liability for things like offline user sexual assault and like reports and having to respond to reports and a bunch of other things. A lot of legal experts I talked to would say that they believe that there's a bit of a difference between content and design, which means these internet companies are not being held liable not only for the third-party content, but the design of their actual websites. You guys still have a lot of follow-up efforts. You mentioned the questionnaire. We talked about it briefly. You're still looking for more participants to come forward and talk about their experiences also. That's correct. We're not done digging and we're still reporting. We're really excited to keep basically investigating and seeing and learning what not only Match Group, but other dating apps do in response. And we would love to hear from more users who've experienced or reported sexual assault to a dating app, people who've worked at the companies, law enforcement. And it's a confidential questionnaire and it can be found on propublica.org slash dating app. Elizabeth Pichani, a fellow at Columbia Journalism Investigations. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.